0: Armageddon in retrospect podcast as I mentioned in the introductory episode today I'm going to be talking about my story and I think it's appropriate that in order to do that I crack a cold one because lord I'm gonna need it so before I get into it I just want to preface it with saying a few positive things about being Jehovah's witness. One, being a Jehovah's Witness gives you a strong sense of meaning. Two, you also have a community, really a global community. Uh, many times I traveled and was showing amazing, amazing hospitality by people that welcomed me to their homes and took care of me when I was visiting their country. And also locally, experienced that community. And then the other thing I think is Kind of tied in with the first point, but you really have a feeling of importance (laughs) and really of having a mission in life of helping other people. Those things being said, the organization itself can still disappear up its own asshole as far as I'm concerned. I just didn't want to paint it as all bad because I'll probably come off just a little bit bitter and angry in, in my story. And I think, frankly, if you leave properly, you are going to have some bitterness and anger there just because of everything you'll experience. So, just putting that out before I get started. As I mentioned before, I'm a third generation ex witness, which means that my grandparents converted to the religion, raised my parents and their siblings in it, and then my parents, in turn, obviously passed it down to us. So, third generation, if you use the general population's definition of a generation, but if you use the Jehovah's Witness definition of generation, I guess I'm still a first generation witness. Uh, Sorry, it was a little inside humor there. If you (laughs) were a Jehovah's Witness, you'll understand what I'm getting at there. So anyways, my father was an elder, and so we were raised relatively strictly, and my mother was a mostly supportive, sometimes argumentative, Jehovah's Witness housewife. And so she pretty much went along with my father's headship, as they would say within the religion. So as we were growing up, we had all the rules in place. And I'll just with the caveat that sometimes it just seems that my parents were tired of trying to enforce them. And so they would get a little lax. So they would just let us kids be for a little while, and then suddenly my father as an elder would have to give a talk at the congregation, or they would hear a talk at the congregation or at an assembly or a convention, and then suddenly clamp down and become strict with the rules again. For example, they might not be thinking about what music we're listening to, and so as kids, we pick, would pick up on that and smuggle in <laughs> music uh, our cassette tapes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself with that into the house. And then suddenly my father would be in my room looking through the music collection and called me in there and he'd be holding a Van Halen cassette and asking me the question as he read the track titles, Running with the Devil, is that what you want to do? you want to run with the devil? And I would just think, no, of course not, but I like the the song. <laughs> and so then he would either have us destroy or throw away the cassette tape, or maybe he would wrap his finger around that, that brown tape inside and give it a pull, kind of disemboweling the cassette tape so you couldn't listen to it anymore. So that's kind of how the rules went in the household and that was pretty much across the board with all the rules, whether it was who we were hanging out with or the TV shows we watched, all of those things. So as far as our activity in the religion, we were very active. At that time, there were two midweek meetings. So two evenings out of the week, we were at church or a meeting. On top of that, we had what was called Family Study. It's now called Family Worship, which is a home Bible study. I use the word Bible loosely. You're essentially studying a Jehovah's Witness publication that tells you what to think of the Bible. And that was torture. That night was torture. Uh, as a kid, you would have rather had bamboo shoots stuck under your fingernails and lit on fire. It would just It was boring, and we would act up, and then it just... My dad would have to line us up and discipline us, ground us, or spank us or whatever to try to get us back in line. So that was midweek. On top of that, we were supposed to prepare for the meetings ahead of time, underline the answers to questions, read the magazines as they came out. So very busy during the week. When the weekend came and finally got a day off from school, You think, well, it's Saturday, right? So we're just going to stay home and eat cereal and watch cartoons. No, no. Guess what? (laughs) You're going to get dressed in a business suit, grab a leather portfolio full of religious pamphlets, and you're going to go knock on doors and trying to find a schoolmate so that when you go back to school on Monday, you can get ridiculed. Because what else does a child fucking want to do on a Saturday? Right? They want to be out proselytizing. So we always spent at least a couple hours on Saturday mornings. My goal once I got to a certain point was to try to go to the doors by myself so I could fake knock or fake ring the doorbell and hope that no one would see that there was a kid on their porch that was dressed in a tie. <laughs> so that's pretty much how I took it. And then it was awful. My father would go with me because he would say, oh, you need to knock harder or press the doorbell again and again and so that was awful I I did not enjoy the preaching work I don't know of many people who actually do so Sundays was back to church uh, a couple hours at church and if my parents were especially guilty feeling guilty we would then go out preaching again on Sunday after the meeting so it was very busy A couple of events uh, that hit me were when I was about nine years old. My sister, who is eight years older than I am, was disfellowshipped and at the same time kicked out of the house. And that was extremely painful for me. I was very close with my sister, and I couldn't understand exactly what was happening because I was so young. And my parents then basically poisoned me in a way towards my sister they told me that she was dead to us that we weren't shunning her she was shunning us by her actions so on and so forth and so I lost that connection for a long time and but all the same I I continued on because (laughs) there was no other option it wasn't like they gave us choices so just continued being a Jehovah's Witness, and at the age of 11, I was baptized, and when you're baptized, that is a lifelong contract. That's really when you become responsible towards the organization and liable to the shunning policy, and so having seen what happened with my sister, I always lived with that fear of being kicked out, kicked out of the religion, kicked out of my family, uh, so it, in a way, more or less made me try to toe the line or be a "quote unquote good little witness. Good little people pleaser, I would say. And so I felt extra close to God after I was baptized and began auxiliary pioneering on my school vacations when I was still in public school. Later on I'd be taken out and homeschooled, but auxiliary pioneering, if you don't know, is uh you pro- you're promising to spend at least 60 hours a month doing that wonderful preaching work <laughs> and so the, the theme throughout my story is doing things i didn't really want to do but doing them anyways because i thought it was the right thing as well as receiving that positive social feedback you know the pats on the back the the commendation the smiling approval you get from not only my parents but the people in the congregation. So that will continue to repeat itself throughout my story. So just keep that in mind. My parents, as I mentioned, took me out of public school in the eighth grade. They didn't want me to be susceptible to the influences at school, especially going into high school. And so I basically finished school on my own because (laughs) my mother only had a 10th grade education and I could already spell better than her. So... I was left to my own devices to finish school, which I did. And I did get some form of a piece of paper that is allegedly a diploma from that. Moving into my teen years, just like a lot of other teens, a lot of my peers, I got a little bit involved in a double life. Now my peers went in a little bit harder on it. They really did the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing i really only did the rock and roll thing unless you consider masturbation sex that's as close as i got on that level i essentially did enough to die guilty but still a virgin so those are my teen years i was just listening to rap music and whacking off and watching some rated r movies things all things you're not supposed to do and People picked up on the fact that I was a little bit on the fence, as they would say. They they would say you're limping upon two different opinions. It wasn't that I I disbelieved, because I hadn't been given any other options. It was just a sense that within me that I don't know if this is what I want to do with my life. And so a lot of other witnesses observed that, and they kind of started looked at me like looking at me like I was that kid, that teenager that wasn't going to make it in the organization. That was just going to disappear, and they would never see me again. But lo and behold, at the age of 18, I decided that I had erred enough and that it was time to set things straight, to do an about-face, to do some penance for my misspent teenage years, and to prove people wrong by being the best fucking Jehovah's Witness I could be. And so at 19, I moved into a new congregation and I told the elders that I wanted to get things straightened out and I wanted to make progress, which in hindsight was a huge mistake, but it seemed right in the moment. And because I had a penis, things escalated quickly. You see, I'm sorry, ladies, but the females <laughs> within the group do not get promoted because they have the wrong plumbing. So they just don't get the responsibilities. But if you're a young man and you tell them that you want to do things, wow, it goes very fast. So I began at that point regular pioneering, which means I spent 70 hours every month preaching door to door. Awful. And at the same time, the elders, because I had spoken with them, were molding me grooming me if you will uh, essentially they were crushing my spirit, my independence so my music collection was getting I was destroying my music I was changing my cl- the way I dressed my clothing because they don't want you to dress as they would say quote unquote worldly and so I just be, started becoming this this mold really a caricature of what a good witness is supposed to look like And that happening, they made me a ministerial servant, appointed me a ministerial servant. If you never were a witness, it's basically like being a deacon, they would call it in another religion. You're doing the grunt work that the elders don't want to do. So just a lot of uh, little administrative paper shuffling, handing things out, passing microphones, running the sound system, the microphone system, during the meetings, things like that. And so... I was plugging along with that, and then shortly thereafter, I began to receive pressure to go to Bethel. And Bethel is the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses. It's where they print their literature, they do, they administer the preaching work, and a lot of other things happen there. It's kind of like a communal communal living situation. You're unpaid. You're a volunteer. They give you. A place to live, they give you your food, they give you a small stipend to pay for your deodorant and toothpaste and stuff like that, but you're under a vow of poverty. So you're working full time for no salary. And that's what Bethel is. So I started receiving pressure to go there, but I really had some serious misgivings. I thought that I was not cut out for it. It seemed things seemed to be happening too fast. And I th- I thought, well, I'm just getting my life in order as a Jehovah's Witness. But the pressure kept mounting. And I had a really close friend who was going to Bethel. And he said, why don't you just put in a temporary application? So a temporary application means you can go for a week or two weeks or a month and just work for that period of time and then go back home. As opposed to what is called a permanent application where you go for at least a year but they want you to stay much longer. So I said, well, I I guess I could do anything for a couple of weeks or a month. So I will do that. I'll put in that temporary application. And also, of course, besides my friend, there was also the rest of the congregation telling me I should go with him to check it out. So that's what I did. And shortly thereafter, we had a visit from the circuit overseer. A circuit overseer is like a regional manager. He's Oversees a uh, handful of congregations, and he visits a different one each week, giving talks and inspiring fear and admiration in <laughs> the doting followers, the publishers, uh, making the elders shake in their boots and people but wear their best suits and and really try to butter him up. And he counsels people and corrects things and tells everybody what they're doing wrong. In general, that. They were pretty nice guys, but it's just they're higher up in the the hierarchy. So people tend to fear them more, and they tend to uh, exert their authority a little bit more than others. So after the Thursday night meeting, that this guy was visiting that week, and he came right up to me. And he, I don't know why they, you know, you use the title brothers and and sister brother and sister in the congregation, but it's pretty formal It's typically just when you're on the platform and you're addressing somebody or maybe for a younger person and you're addressing an older person, but for some reason when <laughs> they want to hand out some type of counsel or advice or questioning, all of a sudden they would you know this guy's sixty and I'm nineteen and he has to referred to me as Brother Fair. So he says, Brother Fair, I um, I heard you're going to Bethel or want to go to Bethel temporarily. That's really good. That I'm so proud of you. That's a really good goal. Uh have you thought about putting in a permanent application? And I said, Well, no, I, I really just want to go temporarily and see if I like it. And then suddenly his whole demeanor changed. He got very serious and he got leaned in a little bit towards me and his voice got a little deeper and he he said, Brother Fair, do you know what Bethel means? The word Bethel means the house of God. If you don't like the house of God, you have a serious attitude problem. And Brother So-and-so and I could take you in the back room and straighten that out. And I, uh, I just said, well, that that won't be necessary. <laughs> and so he reaches in his briefcase, and he pulls out a permanent Bethel application, and he hands it to me. And he says, fill this out and turn it in to me by the end of the week, because the circuit overseers could put their notes about you on it. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, and that way, when you go to Bethel, they can see if they like you. So I did it. I did it. And in my head, I thought, because this application has a lot of questions on it and very detailed questions. And God damn it, if I didn't lie on all but one of the questions, you know, do you listen to rap music? Oh, no, 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 I don't listen to rap music. And do you look at porn? No, never, not porn. No, why would I do that? And do you watch Rated R movies? No, I don't watch Rated R movies. No, damn, of course not. And so I was lying to them. And I thought, You know, the the idea is that God sees everything and that his Holy Spirit won't let you have one of these assignments. If you are doing things that are wrong, especially if you're lying on the application. So I just figured that I would get blocked out in that regard. But I went to Bethel temporarily. I got accepted for that. And God... Wow, it was July. It was just hot as balls. And I was working on a project replacing a factory roof. So, just up on this black rooftop, shoveling rocks, the dead of July. And they were trying to squeeze as many hours out of us, temporary workers, as possible. So, we were working extra hours. And it was the work itself was awful. And then there were some people, too, that I met right off the bat. that I just thought they were real assholes. So I was like, I don't know about this. But that last week, I went back to my room, and there was a letter waiting for me, which is strange because I was getting no mail. But it was an internal letter from Bethel saying, Congratulations, you are accepted to come permanently to Bethel. And you have a month to go home to get your shit in order. They didn't use that exact wording and report back to Bethel. So I reported to all kill Bethel on September 6th of 2001. So I was in my housekeeper training when nine eleven 9-11 happened. Well, and housekeeper training is because they want you to, they try to train you how to clean up after yourself and make your bed. It's very much like the military. So that's what housekeeper training is. But 9-11 happened. I just arrived just a few days earlier. And I thought, oh, man, I can't believe I made it to God's house just as the world is ending. And and frankly, a lot of people thought that they thought that 9-11 was the start of the end of the world. But here we are 20 years later. So let me see how that went. So at Wallkill, I got my assignment. I was going to be working in the kitchen. And that's what I did for the six years I was there. Different positions within the kitchen, but always in the kitchen. I want to say that I had a lot of fun. I did have a lot of fun at Bethel because there's a lot of young guys there. There's a lot of com- camaraderie, a lot of hanging out, a lot of drinking. Yes, Jehovah's Witnesses do drink if you didn't know that. And sometimes you drink a lot, and especially at Bethel. And we just hung out. We traveled. We went to dance parties. We chased those f- modest Jehovah's Witness women around. And so I had fun in that regard. And I really, really made some close friends who were as close as family to me. But I also want to say that there was, sometimes it was just so fucking annoying. There was just a level of control there. As a regular Jehovah's Witness, you have so many rules and so much stuff. It's just your life is controlled. And at Bethel, it's another level and layer of rules on top of that. So it's just your life is micromanaged, what you have in your room, what you do, everything. It's just there's always people observing you and counseling you and correcting you nonstop. And th- besides that, there was just the politics. Oh, my God, the politics. Just people, not everyone, but a lot of people jostling for positions, trying to get into Departments or offices, or and they would be putting on shows and they'd be throwing other people under the bus and backstabbing people. I'm not, and I'm not joking. And this even happened in my own department, which is crazy because you're just, I was like, it's a kitchen. Let's just fucking cook food. But there was politics. My God, there was politics. So those things were just annoying, as well as some other stories that I'll probably get into at a later time of just things I saw that were just real head scratchers or super disappointing to observe so two years into my stint at bethel important detail i switched to a spanish congregation why because i wanted to expand my ministry no i'm kidding (laughs) i just i did it for the food that was it the food and maybe You know, the Latin women. I mean, you know, Latinas, come on. So that's really why I switched. It wasn't for spiritual reasons. So I switched over. I learned Spanish. And that was actually pretty cool. It was neat seeing other cultures and interacting. And then also taking the language and traveling to other countries and being able to really kind of, I don't want to use the wrong word here, but just engage more with the locals knowing the language I'll put it that way so that was a cool part of my life um, and I late into my Bethel career met the woman that would become my wife and I had had enough of Bethel so I left got married and moved into the Spanish congregation that she was in in Massachusetts and so we were just regular pioneering together. We even started to do apply to go to Gilead, which is the school for missionaries who want to take on a foreign assignment. It's changed since then, but that's what it was at the time. Uh, my wife was and still is a model witness and a regular pioneer. Um, I, on the other hand, was just an engin- engineered facade. Again, just a caricature i believed in the doctrines but there was something missing on my insides from it definitely something missing there so i just thought i would always do it all the same then eventually my heart would really be in it so shortly after i got married that being said i was appointed an elder and I had just been conditioned to say yes to everything. That's important to know. So I I always, as you kind of probably picked up on throughout the story, I always just went along with what people told me to do. And so as an elder, I just had this distinct feeling shortly after I was appointed an elder, that I was drowning, just slowly drowning, drowning in assignments. And they would ask me to do something and I would just say yes even though I didn't really want to do it. It was like I was on this treadmill holding on for, for life, and I was running, and someone just kept upping the speed and upping the incline constantly, and it just got harder and harder and harder, and they never, ever turned it off or tried to give you a break. Just always more incline, always more speed, So if you were a witness, you'll recognize what I'm about to say. I had one of those hard-sided briefcases, the elder cases as they were called, that was pretty much the size of a fucking coffee table. And that thing was stuffed full of three ring binders with color-coded tabs. And it was all this shit in those binders that I needed to get done but could never catch up on. And they were just, <laughs> it felt like every week there was another binder going in there. There was another binder going in there. And I'm not going to describe all of this. I can't explain all these terms to, if you never were a witness, my apologies. But let me just run through some stuff I was doing here. If you were a witness, you'll get what I was saying, what I'm about to say. I was a service overseer. I was a watchtower conductor. I was preaching in distant territory. I was a field service group overseer. I was an RBC personnel coordinator as well as a volunteer working in RBC projects. I was on the operations committee and I also handled the operations committee's accounts. I gave local parts at the congregation weekly, sometimes multiple parts weekly. I worked on organizing departments for the regional convention. I also gave talks at the regional conventions. I also did the same at the circuit assembly, the circuit level. I was organizing departments and giving parts. I was also teaching parts to the kingdom ministry school, the school where they train the elders and the ministerial servants. I was sitting in on judicial committees. I was doing shepherding calls. I was pioneering. That's just what I can remember right now. I know that's not everything. There's more, but it was just, that's what I'm saying. It was just oh, this feeling of drowning under all that. And then two years into the marriage, a circuit overseer came and asked us to move to that distant territory we were preaching in to to start a Spanish group. And, of course, I said yes, and we moved, and I became a Spanish group overseer. And we started out with just seven publishers. And, again, I had all the responsibilities already. Then, on top of that, I was the only elder in the group. So I was the school overseer, the watchtower study conductor, the talk coordinator, the territory servant, everything, (laughs) all the functioning parts of the group, I was handling on my own in the beginning. But I'm ashamed to say that I made that little group into a small congregation. Well, actually, let's make something clear. The Jehovah's Witnesses would say that I deserve no credit for that, that all credit goes to Jehovah and Jesus. And I say, they can have it. <laughs> I don't want the credit. I don't want the blame for that. They can take it. And so I actually converted several people. And I wish I could have deconverted them when I exited. But apparently, I am responsible for doing too good of a job of indoctrinating them. So there was uh, that was impossible. Well, now let me get into the part where I talk about leaving. Because looking at all this on paper, you'd probably wonder, well, why, why would I ever come to a person you know this high up in the organization? I mean, not that it was anything special, but you get what I'm saying. Why would he leave? Oh, there's the church bells. So that's appropriate. So as I got busier and busier and busier, I started to feel more and more hypocritical. And my conscience was really bothering me. And so finally, I met with a couple of fellow elders and I confessed to them, look, I lied about some stuff. I have some stuff I've been keeping secret and like I've dabbled in Internet porn. And, uh, you know, they kind of looked at me like, yeah, us, too, but we can't admit that to you right now. So anyways, they met with me in a judicial committee, which I'm not going to explain right now what that is. And disciplined me and they took away all of those responsibilities, privileges, all the stuff I was doing was taken away in one fell swoop. And all that was left at the congregation level was for me just to sit there. Just to fucking sit there and listen. And as I did that, I really heard for the first time in my life as an adult what was actually being said. And there started to be this low level of discomfort that was growing within me. Not disbelief yet, but discomfort. And I just remember, for example, a public talk, I was just sitting there listening, nowhere to go, and the speaker was just talking about Armageddon. And he was not a very tactful speaker. And he was just telling the audience, and among the audience, because it was a Spanish group, were a lot of just interested people who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses who looked pretty horrified at what he was saying. He was just saying, oh, Armageddon, we're going to have dear friends, we're going to have family members who didn't accept the truth as Jehovah's Witnesses call their teachings, and they're going to die. They're going to die, and it's going to be sad, but jehovah will heal our hearts so we can't give up now on behalf of those people (laughs) and i was just listening and watching the discomfort in the room even the witnesses were a little bit uncomfortable just because it was so direct but i knew that he wasn't lying it's just they typically try to be a little more indirect and tactful so just things like that were happening At the same time, even though I couldn't do anything at the Kingdom Hall besides listen, they do allow you to keep preaching and converting people and peddling the literature. So I was doing that. I was still keeping pretty active. I actually had five Bible studies still. And this is important because here's what happened. Now, One of those Bible studies I had to teach from the Bible teach book. Sorry, again, I can't explain all these terms if you were never a witness. But I had the 1914 appendix and (laughs) I'll have to unpack that doctrine another day but basically Jehovah's Witnesses think that based on some mathematics based off an event which I'll mention in a second Jesus returned invisibly in 1914 and is ruling and now we're in the last days since 1914 so if you were like me as a witness you probably hated teaching that section of the book Uh, I used to excuse it by saying, oh, it's just it's complicated and it's hard for people to get. But I think deep down, I really thought it was batshit crazy. And that's why I didn't like teaching it. So as I was doing that appendix on a Bible study, I was looking across the living room at the student. And he looked at me like, this is crazy. He gave me that distinct look on his face. He didn't say it but that look was written all over his face. And I instantly thought what his face was saying. I thought, this is crazy. I wouldn't believe this in a million years if someone came to my house to teach me this. And that thought terrified me, absolutely terrified me. I turned red. I started sweating. I was stammering. I couldn't get my words out. And I just kind of wrapped up that study and got the hell out of there as soon as I could. I got in the car. I was visibly shaken. My wife asked me, are you okay? I just said, "Ah, I'm not feeling well. That's all because you don't discuss doubts or things like this with, even with that, with your wife in that intimate relationship. You typically won't talk about it. And so the next day I would have normally gone out preaching, but I, my wife i was gonna stay home and just strengthen myself spiritually by doing research that was my plan and so i pulled out from the publications the Jehovah's witness publications everything pretty much they had to say on 1914 and i was just like up to my tits in books and magazines in reading and at some point it just looked like a scene from a beautiful mind I had, like, a whiteboard with lines connecting dates and events, and there was fucking strings connecting pictures around the room. looked like I'd lost my mind, and I was trying to figure this out, and at the end of the day, it it wasn't better. (laughs) It was the opposite. It, It was worse. I believed even less, and at that point, I said, all right, I need to go to some secular sources to confirm some of these events, and I know two things. One, I know the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Two, I know that they did that in 607 BCE. And so I went to the local library, and I grabbed some Jewish encyclopedias and history books and looked it up. Sure enough, Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in the year 587. 587? Are you fucking kidding me? And so I... (laughs) I started checking, cross-checking other books, other references, 587, 587, and then I just, between secular sources and the publications, I just did a deep dive on 1914. I, I looked up who came up with these ideas originally. I looked them up. I looked up what they taught. I looked up with everything. So I was just unpacking it, unpacking it, unpacking it, and then I just came to the realization that the teaching was false. I didn't believe it anymore. And again, it was just I was I didn't know what to do with that, but I knew it. So, uh, then the question arrived in my mind, which was, "What else are they not telling me? What else might I be getting lied to about?" And at that point, I said, "I'm going to go on the internet," and that's a big deal if you're a Jehovah's Witness because you're taught never to go on the internet just to try to do open and objective research on Jehovah's Witnesses because they tell you the internet is full of these people called apostates. They're tricky. They're deceitful. They are mentally diseased. They The devil uses them. They're like gangrene for your mind and for your beliefs. And so they instill this fear in you. And I uh, And they're right to instill the fear in you because once you go on the internet, it's fucking over. I mean, it's <laughs> it's done. Unless you're capable of some type of incredible mental gymnastics. At that point, having seen what you see, there's no going back. It's like uh, getting one of those memory foam mattresses shipped to you and it comes and it's in a tube the size of a soup can and you cut open the plastic, and the thing grows to the size of a fucking house, you're not getting it back in that tube. It's not happening. And that's what it's like when when you see, you do your research on the internet, and you actually look at things objectively, there's no going back. And so I saw all the doctrinal flip-flops, the failed predictions. I really thought about how damaging the policies were. I never really thought about that, even though I'd been an elder. And then, of course, you see the child sex abuse scandals, the problems, and the cases that you're never told about within the group. And so it was just like a house of cards that collapsed. And at that point, I decided just to start fading. And fading just means you slowly start pulling back from religion, just trying to fade out and disappear without people noticing too much so you don't get the full force of the shunning. And so I just became what they call inactive. I just, no meetings, no preaching, no involvement. And I did that for six years, essentially. I mean, I faded out completely shortly after I started, but I was in that position of just being inactive for about six years. It was, took a big toll on my marriage. Uh, about three years ago, my parents stopped having a relationship with me because they realized I didn't believe anymore. And many of the witnesses also had essentially, for all effective purposes, ended their friendship with me. And so within that time, I tried saving my marriage. I tried salvaging the relationship, relationships and the friendships. But finally, recently, I pulled the plug on all of it. So I this is disassociated and separated from my wife. So I'm free of it. I'm talking about it, but I'm free of it. And it's extremely difficult. There's a lot of grieving. Uh, There's a lot of loss involved with the process. But there's also a lot of happiness in being able to try to think for yourself. And so if you're in a similar situation, wherever you're at in the process, my heart goes out to you. Um, Please reach out. And if I have the time and energy, I will try to be as supportive as possible to you. And I also want to add that if we met in our travels in the small little Jehovah's Witness bubble, please contact me. I'd love to hear from you if you know me. Uh, Maybe you were at Bethel with me or in the congregation with me. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. The next episode, we're going to talk about demons. Yes, demon attacks. I have a great story from Bethel on that. So. Stay tuned. I would like to close this episode with a personal rendition of Song 91, Kingdom Melody Number 91, from the classic 1984 songbook, sung by Mo Wah. So enjoy. As chicks are everybody, And chicks are everybody, Chicks are gathered by a yeah. hen. As chicks are gathered by a yeah. hen. As chicks are gathered by a yeah. hen. As chicks are gathered by a yeah.